Welcome to the 316th of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Kim Fortune, standing in for COVID Calls host, Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a cultural anthropologist who studies disaster and environmental health vulnerability. My co-host is Katie Cox, an anthropologist whose research examines how environmental justice injustice is characterized, focusing especially on use of community air monitoring. We're both calling in from the Department of Anthropology, University of California, Irvine, on the native lands of the Tongva and the Akjakamen. Today, we'll discuss air pollution research during the COVID-19 pandemic, highlighting unequal distributions of pollution and environmental injustice. Our guests will be Priyanka D'Souza and, and Gage Kerr, both scientists who study air pollution and inequality using diverse data, including satellite data. A few reminders before we begin, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 Eastern time on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls podcast from the full archive on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbeam. You also can follow COVID Calls on Twitter at US of Disaster or COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, July 28th, 2021, there are, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Centers, uh, over 4 million confirmed deaths globally, over 600,000 confirmed deaths in Kenya, in the US, and almost 4,000 confirmed deaths in Kenya, which will be one focus of our discussions today. A key goal of COVID calls is to draw out the lives and stories represented in these numbers and behind their production. We want to help people understand not only the harms and suffering of the pandemic, but also all the ways people have stepped forward to help us understand and address it. Our call today is in the latter vein, focused on work to understand how air pollution has exacerbated both the COVID-19 pandemic and the profound inequalities through which the pandemic is playing out. My co-host, Katie Cox, will introduce our guests, Drs. Priyanka D'Souza and Gage Kerr. Thanks, Kim. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Dr. Priyanka D'Souza graduated last spring from MIT's Department of Urban Planning, congratulations, and is now an assistant professor in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Denver. Um, her research examines different ways of understanding air pollution and its effects. Priyanka has worked with a diverse array of organizations, including community groups, Harvard School of Public Health, NASA, and the World Health Organization. A recent publication examines PM 2.5 levels in Nairobi before and during the COVID-19 curfew, highlighting implications for environmental justice. Dr. Gage Kerr is a research scientist at the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at George Washington University. His research has examined chemical transport models and the meteorology responsible for ozone and particulate pollution. He's also used satellite data to explore the inequalities of pollution distribution and exposure. An important goal is to understand the meteorological and emissions-driven variability of surface-level air pollutants. A recent publication analyzes the 15 largest metropolitan areas in the United States to see how the drop in air pollution during the COVID-19 pandemic differed from neighborhood to neighborhood. So we'll now turn to our questions. To begin, can each of you tell us where you're calling from today and a bit about what the COVID-19 pandemic looks like there at this point? And Priyanka, we can start with you. Um, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, I've been following the COVID calls, and it's um, it's exciting to be to to be part of part of this. Um, I haven't moved to Denver yet. I'm in Shreveport, Louisiana, with family. Um, Shreveport is a hotspot right now for COVID cases and deaths. And although I do not think that masks are mandate uh, are mandatory at this point, I think. Uh, they soon might be because um, really COVID cases are skyrocketing. I'll echo what Priyanka said and thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be speaking with all of you today. I am calling from my home office in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like the pandemic is quite going in the trajectory we want it to be going in. 
Um, I read something in the Baltimore Sun that Maryland had, I believe, 400 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, which is the most since earlier in the spring. And I believe today DC just reinstated their indoor mask mandate. So not the most optimistic news to be reporting from the Mid-Atlantic today. Yes, changing, changing daily. Um, will you tell us each about a bit about your scientific expertise and specialization? Um, in particular, of what methods and instruments do you use in your research and what do they help you understand? Um, Gage. I've principally been relying on satellite instruments to pose and answer my research questions during my time at George Washington University. Um, just so everyone's aware, there are a bunch of satellite instruments, some from NASA, some from the European Space Agency, some from other institutes that are whizzing along in outer space above our heads. And as they're orbiting the Earth, they're making really important measurements of trace gases and aerosols and other species in Earth's atmosphere. And they're really enabling scientists like myself and others to be able to understand the evolution and variability of these air pollutants and greenhouse gases. So I principally rely on satellite instruments and satellite-derived measurements. And then when it's applicable, I can combine those satellite measurements with model results from chemical transport models or land use regression models, as well as observations. Um, the, the instruments that I work most closely with are low-cost sensors. Um, these low-cost sensors are nowhere um, as accurate as the regulatory monitors, such as US EPA, such as the ones US EPA uses. Um, however, although a regulatory monitor might cost, you know, between a hundred to two hundred thousand US dollars, a low-cost sensor typically costs less than two thousand um, dollars, which may and so so when I say low-cost, it's it's relative to a regulatory monitor. Um, the reason why I think such instruments have promise is um, in the entire continent of, of Africa, there are only a handful of monitors that provide publicly available data. Um, and so low-cost sensors are increasingly used by different groups um, to, to produce data where, where none exists. Um, in addition to using low-cost sensors, um, I have also used some satellite data um, and have also worked with similar models as, as uh, Gage um, in my research. And what kind of data is available for under understanding air pollution? How has that developed in recent years? And uh, where do you see what's your vision for air pollution and data and research in the next decade or so? Um, maybe I'll, I'll just go. Um, so a lot, so, um, I think one of the, one of the most important initiatives in the field of, of air pollution data science has been OpenAQ's work. They've basically collected data from different regulatory agencies that provide publicly available data in different formats. And they've scraped all of this data and provided, uh, and provided, you know, to the public um, in the same format, which makes it easy to use and run analyses on. Um, and so all of a sudden, um, I think I think OpenAQ started between five to seven years ago. So all of a sudden, um, this data suddenly became much more accessible. Many of these agencies had made the data public, but it wasn't really easy to download um, and analyze because it was all over the place in different formats. So OpenAQ has done the field a huge service. Um, they built sort of the data infrastructure for uh, for scientists to to look at these regulatory instruments. Um, in addition to um, these reg in, in addition to the regulatory monitoring data available from OpenAQ, there's satellite data, which for the most part is publicly available, and I'm sure uh, Gage will will speak more about this. Uh, low cost sensor data is many many instruments. Um, it, 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 uh, actually, low-cost sensors, there are so many different kinds of sensors on the market. Um, and so it's been very, there has been no central database for um, low-cost sensor data until quite recently. 
The Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, and OpenAQ partnered to scrape uh, low-cost sensor data from a variety of, source, of sources, including sites such as Purple Air. Uh, Purple Air is one of the most common um, air quality monitors, but they've made it so that anyone, any scientist who's who's collecting data using low-cost sensors can upload the data to, their, to, to uh, this platform that they have developed. Um, in fact, we have started, uh, my, my, my lab at, um, at MIT has been uploading some of the mobile data that we've been collecting um, onto this site. And I think this is also pretty much a game changer. But I want to say that in addition to these, um, in addition to these two sources and these two sort of robust infrastructures, um, there, there have also been lots of scientific studies published by scientists in different countries in Africa and in India. Um, with really important results and, and data over the years, um, which is also an important resource. And I, and I think we are still looking for ways to standardize it and use um, all, of the, all, of, all of the science that has been done already. In, in my opinion, the type of research that I do and, and Priyanka does as well, this neighborhood scale uh, inequality research when it comes to air quality really requires us to have an understanding of how pollution levels vary from neighborhood to neighborhood. If you live in a neighborhood that's maybe by an interstate or busy road or one that's by, I don't know, an incinerator or power plant, your pollution levels could be really, really different than levels just a mile away in a neighborhood that's a bit farther away from those potent sources of pollution. So if we were to do that with ground level monitors and study pollution with ground level monitors, we would need to have monitors really in every neighborhood, which as Priyanka hinted at is not financially feasible considering the regulatory grade monitors cost upwards of $100,000. And I read recently they cost almost $25,000 a year each to maintain when it comes to the cost for filters and cartridges and personnel. So they're really expensive and even the low cost sensors, which are rapidly proliferating and have a lot of promise, it's still not feasible to have, you know, a low cost monitor on every square kilometer patch of Earth's surface. So that's where I think satellite data comes in. And I, as I think about how this field will change in the next decade or so, I think having more satellite data, higher um, spatial resolution when it comes to the satellite data is really going to transform our ability to surveil air pollution and atmospheric composition from space. And of course, there's always going to be a place for those regulatory grade measurements that are very expensive to make. They're really invaluable for doing some ground truthing work to connect the satellite data with what's actually happening on the ground. Um, but just to loop back to the original question, I think that this field is going in the direction of, of satellite data and relying on satellite data um, more prominently. Uh, Gage, could you follow up and say what you think satellites don't see very well? Um, you know, as data practices develop and change, there's, there's gains, but there's also things that kind of fall off screen. And so just in your experience, what do we need to kind of keep in mind as satellites become a more commonly used instrument and air analysis? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are a couple different limitations to satellite data. Uh, one is that satellite data are orbiting above the Earth and kind of staring down through the atmosphere, and they're measuring the total amount of a particular species or air pollutants in Earth's atmosphere. When we think about health and the type of pollution that impacts human health, we're thinking about concentrations or pollution levels at Earth's surface. So the satellites measuring this total amount in the atmospheric column, whereas health, again, looks at concentrations at the surface. Now, with that being said, even though they're slightly different units, there's uh, often a very strong correlation between the total amount in the atmospheric column and what's going on at the surface. Um, so that's one limitation, but you know, there are reasons to believe that the satellite drive quantity is giving us somewhat of a proxy for what's going on at the surface. The second thing I'd say is that our current generation of satellites are polar orbiting. So that means they are orbiting around Earth's poles and, and making measurements as they, they whiz around the globe. So what this means is that for a given patch of land on Earth's surface, there's at most maybe one snapshot of what's going on during the day, during the satellite's overpass time. 
so that kind of inhibits our understanding of what's going on throughout the course of the day as we just have this one snapshot. But there is a, a new generation of satellites that's slated to be launched in the next, let's say, five to 10 years that are going to be what we call geostationary satellites. So those are parked in one place out in outer space, so to speak. And instead of orbiting around the poles, uh, these satellites just stare at one part of the Earth continuously. So although our current generation of satellites can't really enable us to understand what's going on at all hours of the day, this new generation of satellites is going to help us to understand um, the diurnal, the daily evolution of species in Earth's atmosphere. For both of you, what is both the challenge and promise of neighborhood scale data? Like, is it you just flick a button and you can get it from satellites or is it a, a massive level of investment to get that level of resolution? Um, and also, where do you think that we can go with more finely resolved data, either from uh, community monitors or satellites? I guess I'll jump in. Um, regarding the cost question and kind of flipping a switch, you know, satellite missions take really long to plan and fund and execute. Um, there's some talk now from US agencies of satellite missions that aren't planned until the 2030s. So that gives you some sense of the amount of time, the time horizon needed to plan these instruments. And I know we're kind of complaining about how much um, EPA regulatory monitors cost, but these $100,000 monitors pale in comparison to how much a satellite costs. With that being said, though, I think that you know, these satellites and their complete global coverage uh, for many of them are worth the cost. They're enabling us to see things uh, that we haven't seen before. They're enabling us to study hard to understand places like maybe the Arctic or you know, the Amazon where we can't exactly trek in and place a monitor. So I think they're worth the cost. I know many scientists would agree with me. Absolutely. However, I mean, I do think, I do know that um, it does, re it does require effort and expertise to, pr uh, you know, process uh, satellite data. Um, and there have been many discussions, um, and I've been part of them through NASA's HACAST team. NASA has this team called the Health um, and Air Quality Applied Science Team, where they're trying to get, they're trying to help uh, scientists and the public learn how to use satellite data, and they help. They hold several trainings through their RSET uh, program. Um, it is it is challenging. I mean, if you're not if you uh, if you're not a coder, if you're not a data scientist, it is harder to play with satellite data than it is to download data from a stationary monitor. Uh, but there are that there are all of these efforts to try and make that easier. How can data from um, satellites and low-cost sensors or regulatory monitors, other kinds of stationary monitors at the ground level, be used in conjunction with one another? Um, you mentioned ground truthing, but is there are there other benefits to kind of leveraging the increasingly diverse set of technologies we have for um, assessing air quality? Um. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this simply because uh, the study that you all referenced earlier, the mobile mon, I, I I'll tell you why we had to use these mobile monitors um, and couldn't do our study with with this current um, sort of satellite data that exists. Um, so the satellite data currently for Nairobi, if I were to to look at PM two point five fine particulate matter concentrations, uh, is at a one kilometer by one kilometer spatial resolution. If you're looking at, uh, so if you're doing like a national analysis, Kenya is a small country. So, um, so first of all, because there are so few ground-based monitors in all of Africa, the um, the sort of PM two point five of fine particulate matter estimates from satellite data uh, uh, across the continent have many many uncertainties, um, as compared to elsewhere where there are more reference monitors to sort of ground truth the satellite information. Um, so even using satellite data for over Kenya, which is a pretty small um, country, it's unclear. Like it is likely you will be able to extract trends, but it's still too small um, to to 
um, there's still too few satellite grid cells over the entire country to be sure that you'd be able to extract useful information to, to sort of compare within the country air pollution levels. Um, however, uh, this is why across, across Africa in particular, there is a need for ground-based monitors to leverage um, satellite data effectively. So we chose to use mobile low-cost sensors for our study design because we were interested in um, within neighborhood variability in air pollution in Nairobi before and during the COVID curfew. Uh, there's a lot of, there, there's, Nairobi is a hill station, so there are lots of clouds. So the number of satellite retrievals over this, our study area was also small. While the low-cost sensors could give us a finer data um, as well as data at a higher temporal resolution than satellite data for our design. Thanks, and speaking of which, Priyanka, could you please describe um, this a little bit more about this study uh, recently published in Environmental Research Communications? Um, so you're focusing on PM 2.5 in Nairobi during the COVID-19 pandemic at the neighborhood scale. Could you tell us a little bit more about what your team found? Sure. Um, so the actual mobile deployment was done um, by the University of Nairobi, Nairobi Makerspace with a team at Open Seneca, uh, a team called Open Seneca, uh, which is a group of students based at the University of Cambridge who are developing these open source, um, low cost air quality monitors that can be deployed um, in different cities around the world. Uh, they provided the sensors to the University of Nairobi Makerspace who carried out this incredible experiment. What they did was they mounted uh, these low-cost sensors on the back of motorbikes, um, which drove around the city before um, before COVID really started, and then COVID started, and uh, they were able to keep the experiment running. Um, and using this data, we we use this data to extrapolate sort of air pollution levels over the entire city and compared levels in different neighborhoods before and during the COVID nineteen curfew. Um, and to our surprise, we found that in certain neighborhoods, the poorer neighborhoods, air pollution levels had actually increased um, during during the COVID-19 curfew. And this was surprising to us because, um, as you may have as you may remember, at the start of the pandemic, there were so many newspaper headlines that said that the one silver lining of COVID was the reduction in air pollution because of the reduction of vehicles um, on the road. Um, what what we think is happening is that in in these specific neighborhoods where we saw increases in PM two point five, is that there has there there has been research in tandem which has found that many poor residents lost income during uh, during the crisis and therefore had to switch from say LPG and had to go and use solid biomass fuels uh, for their cooking and energy needs. Um, and we think it is because of these increased emissions from uh, from these fuels that we actually saw an increase. Um, another explanation could be uh, people in these neighborhoods couldn't afford to not go to work. Um, and so um, traffic still continued. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, and just to kind of put this in conversation with um, Gage, your research, could you uh, tell us a little bit more about the research you recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science focused on nitrogen dioxide levels at the neighborhood scale during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, of course. We wanted to use this COVID-19 pandemic, this disaster, as kind of a natural experiment. During the pandemic in the U.S., about 50% of passenger vehicles got taken off the roads as people switched to working from home or maybe unfortunately were furloughed or laid off. So we wanted to use this, this change, this massive change in emissions and activity to see what we could learn about what's driving nitrogen dioxide disparities and maybe think about more long-term feasible solutions to address these disparities. And just so all the listeners know, we focused on nitrogen dioxide, which is a trace gas in the atmosphere. Uh, nitrogen dioxide is generally produced through fossil fuel combustion. It's associated with traffic and industry in cities and has a lot of health effects associated with it. In particular, um, maybe the most notable one is asthma, but there are other respiratory ailments and diseases that are associated with it. So our study used satellite data to investigate changes in nitrogen dioxide pollution during the pandemic for different census tracts in the U.S., 
And then we looked at the demographics of these census tracts using data from the U.S. Census Bureau. And we really found three main conclusions. The first is that marginalized communities, so communities that might have lower income or have a higher percentage of racial ethnic minorities, these communities experienced the largest decreases in nitrogen dioxide pollution during the pandemic. And this is an important finding because we've known for decades that these communities face disproportionately large burdens of air pollution and other environmental hazards. The second thing we found, which isn't quite so positive as the first thing, is that although the largest decreases in nitrogen dioxide pollution occurred in these diverse, marginalized neighborhoods, what we found is that in many cities of the U.S., the nitrogen dioxide levels in these racially and ethnically diverse and lower socioeconomic status communities was still higher during the pandemic, during this, this unprecedented drop in activity and emissions than the nitrogen dioxide pollution levels in white, wealthier neighborhoods prior to the pandemic. So that means that, again, this, this massive change in how we live our lives and how we work and how we travel, this change cannot undo these really persistent nitrogen dioxide disparities. And the, the third and final take-home message from our paper is getting at the source of these disparities. Through our analysis, we showed that the passenger vehicle activity really dropped by a lot during the pandemic, but that didn't really change the magnitude of these nitrogen dioxide disparities. And what this points us to is the role of heavy-duty trucking. Heavy-duty trucks use highways and interstates that are predominantly located in marginalized communities. And heavy-duty trucking really continued throughout the pandemic more or less unchanged because goods still needed to get to market and from point A to point B. So this finding is a really policy-relevant finding that hopefully will help us design future policies to better protect public health and reduce or even eliminate these disparities. Gage, this is a big issue in California because of our ports and warehouse networks. Um, just the pollution burden is quite extraordinary. Um, do you, one of the research groups at UCI that Katie and I work with, Air UCI, they have recently uh, proposed a study that would look at non-tailpipe emissions. So California has taken steps to electro, to require electrification of its freight fleet, uh, but there's that doesn't mean pollutions will go away and it's like tire and brake emissions and um do you know if satellite analyses will be able how expansive are like what all can they capture and you may not know i, I but um just as we kind of keep moving in this direction to address the freight loads yeah that's a good question i'm, I'm not an expert on the tire and brake um, particulates and pollution you mentioned. Uh, but what I will say is that NO2, which is what we study and what satellites measure, uh, NO2 is highly correlated with other traffic-related pollutants. And NO2 happens to be a species, a gas in the atmosphere that's arguably a bit easier to measure from space than maybe other um, pollutants just because of interference within the atmosphere and, and satellite instrument um, shortcomings. Um, so even if we're measuring NO2, nitrogen dioxide, rather than maybe brake and tire dust or particulates, um, you know, we might have be able to have a good grasp on what these other species are doing just by having NO2 and treating it as kind of a marker or tracer for these other species. So I want to turn back to this kind of opportunity of treating COVID-19 as a natural experiment in a way, and you've both spoken a bit to, to this, but I'd like to uh, ask if you'd expand on it. Um, what have, what does what you've learned from either these studies or the, the research as it's ongoing, what implications does that have for kind of str future strategies for how to um, kind of apprehend or understand um, air pollution from an environmental injustice or health inequities perspective. So what kinds of questions do we learn that we need to be asking based on what we've seen happen in this pandemic? And um, related to that, what are some of the policy and planning implications that this, this research points to? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's uh, that's that is uh, the question. Um, I think I think for my work in in Nairobi, um, I think our research points to the need to track the track the impacts of of COVID spatially on different populations, um, and to tr- and to and like and then to refine. Um, policies to ensure that the most vulnerable are protected. For example, our finding that poorer neighborhoods saw increases in air pollution could result in, you know, the government making sure that energy, that LPG tanks, et cetera, are given to these specific neighborhoods um, to help them cope during the crisis. And and this is particularly important because so much research has shown that long-term um, exposure to air pollution has been associated with increases in COVID deaths. Um, so this, so this research can sort of this tracking of air pollution spatially, uh, tracking of other of other sort of vulner- vulnerabilities, you know, outcomes spatially can lead to like the better targeting of resources and policies to people who need them the most. I don't want to sound too much like a broken record, but I think the results of, of our study really points again to heavy duty trucking as, as being kind of the culprit behind these nitrogen dioxide disparities. Um, moving forward, there are some policy implications as well as data needs. And I guess I'll speak about the data needs first. Um, we have these fantastic satellite instruments that we can use to understand nitrogen dioxide pollution. Uh, but something I'd really like to do is understand more about trucking, where it's taking place, how many trucks we're talking about. And unfortunately, we have a pretty incomplete uh, network of traffic sensors around the country. You know, the Department of Transportation in various states or even the federal DOT does have traffic sensors, but it's often hard to wrangle these data and get them into some type of nationally consistent format. And there are private corporations like Streetlights and Ways that offer traffic data for users, but often these data are really financially prohibitive. We're talking you know, tens of thousands of dollars to have good quality data. So that's one data need that I think would help us to better understand where trucking is occurring and the extent uh, to which trucking is, is going through some of these marginalized communities. But in thinking about policies and in future ways we could address these disparities, um, you know, I know the technology might be far off, but I remember a couple months ago there was all the the buzz on Twitter about the Ford F-150 that was powered with batteries. So, like I said, we're probably a few years off um, from having you know an 18 wheeler powered by batteries, but moving in that direction certainly could address some of these nitrogen dioxide disparities that we documented in our paper. Another maybe temporary solution that puts a band-aid on the problem but doesn't quite fix it might be to reroute trucks away from really densely populated vulnerable neighborhoods. Um, In Washington, D.C., there are some roads that ban trucks, not necessarily for environmental justice reasons, but for security reasons or other reasons. So if, if folks could identify certain communities that have a high frequency of trucks and other commercial vehicles that also have disproportionate health burdens, we might be able to maybe reroute some of that traffic outside of the city or on a different road in order to protect public health. Gage, do you know why the Department of Transportation data is um, is so lacking for your purposes? Is has it just historically not been seen as you would think that they would want that data for a lot of different reasons? And I guess it's tangled in with the question of you know concerns about the health impacts of air pollution have increased dramatically since about. 2015. I mean, steadily, but something there's and and COVID has ramped it up even further. And so 
I guess, why isn't the data there? And is the new knowledge we have through the COVID pandemic, do you anticipate it being a driver um, of that data uh, creation? I don't know if I have an answer for why it's complicated. I have a lot of experience working with EPA monitor data, and that's such a nice website. Anyone, any member of the public can go on the EPA's AQS air quality system website, and they can have a nice interactive map where they zoom into their their home state or area and look at air pollution levels from monitors there. So I was half expecting something like that when I went to these DOT related websites, and I did not exactly find um, that nice graphic user interface. I will say, Kim, you and Katie are calling from California, I believe, and Caltrans has a, a pretty nice site that allows you to easily query um, traffic-related information. But uh, as for the rest of the country, there's not, at least to my knowledge, a freely available, no-cost, nationally consistent data set. You, know, you could go to Maryland Department of Transportation and download some data. You can go to Delaware Department of Transportation and download data, but there's not this nice um, nationally consistent site like we have for our air quality monitors. And maybe I'm missing something. So if, if anyone listening today knows of this, this resource hiding somewhere on the internet, uh, please reach out and let me know. Uh, Gage, one thing we've learned as historians and anthropologists of science is there's a story behind what data is available and what's not in different places. Sometimes there's just bald vested interest that doesn't want the data available. Uh, there's also just uh, different sense uh, sensibilities about what's important and needed. And so characterizing that as social scientists is one way we make sense of the, the present um, and recognizing that data infrastructure and data availability is so constitutive of what we know and how we act in governance. It's a it's become a key focus in social science research as well. I yeah, I think the technologies that you each work with have sort of distinct challenges for data availability. So what do you see as kind of what most needs to be done next to make low-cost sensor data on the one hand, especially as it's starting to kind of be aggregated from multiple different types of, of um, sensors from all over the world, as well as satellite data, um, which, you know, I imagine comes with a different set of challenges to make it more accessible to, to publics who, who want to access and understand it. Um, Priyanka, um, if we could hear from you first. Sure. Um, I think low-cost sensor data is extremely challenging to work with just because there are so many sensor manufacturers on, on the market. Um, so there's so many different types of sensors. Uh, manufacturers are not required to make the algorithms that sort of process the data available. So, you know, it's so the, so it is difficult to understand to know exactly how these sensors are, you know, producing whatever results they spit out at us. Um, and EPA, as well as the South Coast Air Quality Management District in California, have done a lot of work on um, sort of testing these sensors in different um, lab and field conditions. The European GRC is also doing similar work. Uh, the European GRC is actually working towards developing a tier three indicative standards for low cost sensors. Um, so there is, there is this important work that is happening. However, there's still challenges because um, A, the temperature and hu humidity, like temperature, humidity, all of these external factors, the aerosol composition for PM monitors affect um, affect the performance of these devices. And uh, the, perform the, the conditions under which these devices are tested in California or Geneva may not conform to conditions in the field in, say, Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, there are no that I mean, although the Kenya Meteorological Department does have a reference monitor, they don't make the data publicly available. Uh, calibrating the sensors in Nairobi has always been a challenge. Um, so there are, it actually requires a lot of work to work with data from low-cost sensors to interpret the data carefully, um, and so much so that many scientists say these are not really low-cost if you count in all of the all of the hours required to actually process the, the data and, and interpret it uh, correctly. Um, so that's that's really the big challenge with low cost sensors. The other ch the other challenge is that 
low-cost sensors don't meet the regulatory standards. So what happens after you collect this data? They can't be used to hold the federal government accountable. So what is this? What are the different use cases that people are putting this data to? How is this data affecting change? Um, is something that everyone is grappling with, especially regulators, because there, there's been such a proliferation of these devices um, and so many sort of claims made on the basis of this data that everyone's trying to figure out how does this all fit in. Fit in. I'll start off by saying that was a, a really interesting answer, and I didn't realize that that folks out there are trying to set up standards to compare different sensors. So I'm sure that'll be really valuable in the future, especially to people like me who's interested in low-cost sensors but don't know the, the ins and outs and their uncertainties like you do. Um, regarding satellite instruments, there are a number of uncertainties that I think some of which we've alluded to already. Um, one that Priyanka mentioned is that satellite data can be pretty inaccessible to people that might not have a technical background. And that's something I often overlook because I spend all day coding and you know, analyzing big data sets. But when we talk about satellite imagery and satellite-derived quantities, it's not like we're talking about a, a JPEG image that you have on your phone. These are kind of strange file formats that you need special software to open up. So while they are freely available from NASA and other space agencies, there's this kind of inherent um, way that they're not available because people might not have those technical skills needed to, to analyze them. But with that being said, there are some new platforms or newish platforms from, from NASA and other agencies that can kind of guide users uh, to look at the satellite data in a really easy to understand way and toggle certain buttons to maybe you know, change quantities and, and zoom into certain areas of the Earth. So that's one challenge, but then also one way that scientists and science communicators are trying to meet that challenge. Uh, another challenge that comes with satellite data is the idea of coverage. Um, in addition to many of our satellites only measuring um, air quality constituents or other species once a day, there's also potential issues if that area has maybe clouds or snow cover those features can complicate the way that satellites are able to make measurements of a particular air pollutant. Um, there is technology and algorithms that are trying to address some of those limitations, but those coverage issues are a perennial issue. So if you have a city that maybe is uh, persistently cloudy or a city that has a lot of snow cover for a lot of the year, that can challenge the way that we're able to surveil that city's air quality from space. Do, do either you know if there's a concerted effort to skill up um, scientists outside of the US and Europe so that to skill up and give access to the software and things they need to use satellite data, um, especially in those parts of the world with fewer um, central monitors? I think the NASA RSET program, which I which I mentioned earlier, they provide uh, they basically have uploaded videos um, of their trainings. They do hold in person trainings. I know that they hold a few, that they've held a few outside the U.S. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm really not sure about uh, whether the whether they um, how much of that in person training they do outside the U.S. But they definitely have like code and software and videos available. Now, um, we we know about it because we're so immersed in this world, but um, I think I think the question is, how do you get word out there? And I think that NASA's HACAS team that I mentioned is deeply involved in, um, in trying to make this happen. And there, there are several scientists from outside the US who attend NASA HACAS meetings um, and are you know, sort of part of international efforts to use these tools, but it's it's unclear um, who outside, like how difficult it is to find these these programs outside this network. Gage, when you go to the conferences and professional meetings that you go to, what are the demographics? Who's there? Is it a young crowd? Is it an old crowd? How transnational is it? Um, depends on the meeting, I'd say. Um, 
the you know the meetings I go to are typically purely science meetings, which when it comes to the research that we're talking about today, which is environmental justice focused, community focused, that's not exactly the best thing. We want community members there. We want grassroots organizers there who are you know boots on the ground and organizing about these pollution issues. Um, so that's one demographic aspect of these meetings that's not exactly desirable. Um, regarding other demographics, again, it depends on the meetings. Um, you know, I guess the stereotypical image of sciences is maybe not, you know, the kind of melting pot culture that we know America is. And there's a lot of folks that are really trying hard to increase access, to increase, you know, diversity and inclusion in STEM fields. So hopefully the fact that a lot of our conferences are, you know, majority male, majority white, uh, will change soon, especially as we realize more and more every day how, you know, these climate and environmental issues, you know, affect every demographic group out there. And we need all hands on board, all hands on deck to really understand and tackle these problems. It's sort of the flip side of that. One of the things you said earlier that is just really exciting from a socio-political perspective is, you know, these satellites see with global scope. And historically, we've governed air nationally um, and reproduce the nation state as the kind of unit of responsibility. Do you, and clear, and the COVID pandemic, among many other things, has shown, it's interesting that it's clearly global, but it's still been managed primarily nationally. <laughs> and so do either of you have a vision for what it would look like to think globally with satellite data and govern air? Globally, what what would that look like, and what will it take? That is that is such a tough question. Um, I was just thinking about this because a lot of my friends in Boston have been complaining about the, the about the air quality over the last couple of days um, because of the sort of particles that have come all the way from the, the fires in, in, in the Western US. Um, so clearly uh, pollution is transported, air does not sort of uh, respect national boundaries. Um, there are international treaties um, that are supposed to, that are supposed to, uh, that are put in place to like manage these transported emissions. I'm thinking about, and I, I can't remember the name of the treaty, but uh, Southeast Asia has a treaty because of fires from Malaysia. Um, but it's unclear, like what what effect these these treaties have to me. I'm sure there has been research done done on this. For me, for air to be governed globally is for right now. There is such there's so many inequalities in data, in funding. Funding is key um, here. Um, in instruments um, that we use to study air pollution across the globe. So I think the first step for me is I would like to see these inequalities redressed. The Clean Air Fund just released a report last year saying that the amount of funding that goes, uh, the amount of funding from nonprofits that goes to Africa vis-a-vis um, -vis the other continents on air pollution related activities was minuscule. Um, and so if we want to understand and characterize air quality over Af over like different African countries, we need more funding we, for the scientists there uh, to study to study the air that that they breathe. So I think for me, the issue comes with with funding, with building data infrastructures to make it easier for scientists there to access data from satellites, etc. But also there's a need to recognize the work that has been done in these countries already. Um, for me, although everyone says there's air pollution in Kenya is uncharacterized, and that is true. There's no publicly available air pollution data source. But if you go back through the literature, like the University of Nairobi, there have been uh, researchers at the University of Nairobi who've been doing these short-term studies, looking at air quality from the 1980s onwards. And all of them have very consistently sort of reported that the same sources are, you know, they've sort of all identified the most important sources in Nairobi. And that has been consistent from the 1980s till now. 
why is that not enough to take action? Um, and so I think that recognizing that work by doing reviews, um, I think is also extremely important. I'll second everything you just said, Priyanka. Um, the divide between the global north and global south regarding funding, even just interest, um, is is pretty appalling um, at times. So hopefully, you know, as people become more cognizant of the fact that you know we share our atmosphere, it doesn't stop at some arbitrarily drawn national border. Uh, as people become more aware of that and realize it more and more, hopefully there's um, more funding available for these these transboundary studies. Um, I'll be a, the Debbie Downer in the room and going back to the original question about you know what we can do to have maybe more international work to address this shared atmosphere, the shared air. Um, I personally don't think it it seems like it's that likely. You know, we have reservoirs depleted to a couple feet in the west. We have the Pacific Northwest, almost unlivable temperatures, wildfires burning here, there, and everywhere, and politicians can't get on board with you know even modest climate action. So the the thought that they would also have the heart to address air quality issues seems, at least to me, um, like it's not going to be on the short list anytime soon. But again, I'm, I can be a glass half empty kind of person sometimes. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Gage is, um, um, I won't disagree with your uh, uh, empirical assessment. Is there a difference in, you know, if you ask kind of where, where is air science or where can it travel through the policy process? Is there a difference in pollution data in the sense of like human with immediate human health effects versus climate data? You know, it's kind of for many, many years work on those two things kind of ran side by side rather than interwove. And so like, do you have to look one way to deal with the climate stuff and the other to deal with, you know, the, the health and pollution burdens or how has that come together and even changed in recent years? I think the cool thing about climate science and, and air quality science, atmospheric chemistry, is that a lot of the sources of both greenhouse gases and air pollutants are the same. And although nothing when it comes to Earth is ever easy, it would be relatively easy to kill two birds with one stone and address climate issues <laughs> and air quality issues. You know, carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas, and air pollutants come out of the same tailpipes. They come out of the same smokestacks. So we don't need to have necessarily two completely different sets of policies. We could um, address things together and have what we call co-benefits, benefits to both uh, the earth through changes in the climate and then benefits to human health through reductions of air pollutants. Um, shifting scales pretty dramatically, but um, I think important still to, to thinking about you know, the future of this, the kind of production of knowledge around air pollution and inequality. You've both, you both study, focus on air pollution and inequality and studying air pollution from the lens of environmental justice and inequity. Um, can you tell us how you came to focus on this in your own scientific careers and what kind of support or pushback you've experienced along the way? Um, and what does that kind of experience tell you about the way that communities of environmental scientists are thinking about the kind of research um, we're producing and, and its connection to, to these bigger sociopolitical questions? Um, I did not really think about air pollution until my, until, um, I started working at the at UN Environment in, in Nairobi, Kenya, um, where I met this incredible scientist. Her name is uh, Jacqueline McGlade. She was the chief scientist um, of UNEP um, in 2015 and 2016 when I was part of the organization. Um, and she was extremely interested in looking at low-cost sensors um, and how they could feed into air quality management plans. And her strategy was to deploy a low-cost air quality monitoring network in Nairobi, analyze it, and tell, uh, present the results to, to politicians at the UN Environment Assembly, 
um, and say what you could or could not, um, what you could or could not say with low-cost sensor data. Um, and I was the only, I had nothing to do with air pollution, but I was the only engineer part of, part of her team. Um, and so she asked me to be in charge of deploying this network. Um, and that was my first foray. And I was A, shocked with the data um, that we were getting because we were monitoring one of the one of the places that we were monitoring was uh, this neighborhood called Lunga Lunga in Nairobi. Um, a monitor was in a community center, which was a stone throws away from a tear gas producing factory. Um, and there was actually this area called the TB zone um, in this specific neighborhood uh, because so many of the residents worked in the neighboring industries and were getting poisoned. And so it, just seeing the levels of air pollution made me realize that this, I just couldn't believe the values that I was seeing. Um, that's how I got involved. But the reason why I decided to join an urban planning department is because even though I'm a scientist and I think the science is very important, what I do think um, is missing is these connections between the way we plan cities and, um, and air pollution. Um, I think like there's so many studies that have shown how redlining um, still has it still is responsible for disparities in health and wealth outcomes in the US. But there are so many other urban planning interventions that we need to interrogate more closely. Um, and so and, and that's that's sort of how I got involved in the work that I that I do. I kind of stumbled into this field of environmental justice and air inequality pretty recently. Um, my expertise uh, has been in, in chemical transfer modeling and understanding the meteorology responsible for pollution events. But going back to what I said earlier about the COVID pandemic as a natural experiment, we wanted to leverage this natural experiment and see what it could teach us about air inequality and environmental justice. Uh, so that's really what motivated uh, the study I did on nitrogen dioxide disparities. Regarding pushback, which I think you mentioned, Katie, uh, thankfully, there hasn't been a lot that I've received. I've presented this work at a bunch of conferences and, and meetings, and it's it's been very well received. Um, I don't want to toot my horn too much. I think it's well received, not necessarily because of the science I'm bringing to it, but because people have known about these disparities for, for years, for decades. And, you know, people, scientists especially, like hearing about work that crosses that bridge between just research results and journal articles and then actual tangible policy that can be in implemented. Um, so thankfully, knock on wood, not a lot of pushback. Um, I'm you know, looking forward to the future and thinking about additional work that can be done to advance this field of air quality and environmental justice. Can you take that one step further and tell us how we're going to draw the next generation of researchers into this and how their education needs to be different than the education you receive to do the kind of data integration, cross-disciplinary integration. Um, what kind of programming do we need to build to, to build the air governance workforce? It's a loaded question. There's a lot to unpack. Um, you know, one thing that um, I think both Priyanka and, and I've alluded to is this need for bringing researchers from the global south, from, from regions that might, might be doing a lot of innovative work, but maybe for whatever reason, uh, there are processes at play that kind of prevent it from getting in journals that are read in the global north or getting funding that is readily available in the U.S. Um, that would be one reason or, or one one way to to grow this next generation of STEM researchers. Um, another would be just to continue to recognize how you know, there's various spheres on the earth. There's the biosphere, the cryosphere, the atmosphere, and, and they're all interconnected. Uh, nothing exists in isolation in the earth system. And in addition to these spheres being interconnected, they're interplaying with, with urban planning, with societal decisions. So uh, there is this need to not just take classes in the, the major you're in, uh, but to understand the way that your field of study interacts with, with so many other fields. 
I couldn't agree more with everything you said, Gage. I have nothing to add. I think it's really, it's really like a true interdisciplinary education that we that we need. It just since the COVID pandemic has um, continued to bring visibility to health disparities and the air pollution component um, with even greater prominence um, uh, with the Biden administration, do you see the, the national level commitment to address environmental injustice across agencies, you know, whether it's in FEMA um, or in the Department of Health, um, do you think that that's going to change the opportunities you all have as scientists and the opportunities to move your science into decision making? And I, I guess it's to some extent a question of like how hopeful or how cynical are you and why? Um, Gage should start because I am not as attuned to the national level discussions as I know you are. Well, I was going to say you should start because you already heard my cynicism a few minutes ago. Um, but I'll just quickly say, I, I do think there is an appetite for environmental mm -hmm. justice related work in the Biden administration. Pretty early in, in Biden's presidency, he issued an executive order to uh, tackle the climate crisis. And there was a lot of environmental justice aspects woven into that executive order. So between that and other uh, policy initiatives like the Justice 40 initiative, there again is this appetite, there's this talk of environmental justice related action. I do think um, we're still in the early days of the administration and there are a lot of promises to deliver on. So I hope there's funding for scientists to further study and map these inequalities. Uh, and I, I hope that the politicians who at this point are, are talking the talk will will walk the walk and deliver on many of these promises. Yeah, I think like in addition to this, the, the really in, incredibly important work that Gage um, is doing to, to identify these disparities, identify the roots of these disparities, I think there is also a need for this environmental justice agenda to go beyond identifying these disparities, but also figuring out like the barriers to actual progress being made. Um, and so I think, I think there's, uh, there's a need for scientists and social scientists to work together um, to sort of disentangle the system um, because the scientists have done so much work sh pointing out to these disparities. And I think Gage's study is incredible because it it points to a tangible policy. But now we have we need to do the work to figure out what it would take, uh, why this policy has not been implemented already. What do we need to do to get it implemented? How do communities who've, who have some of these answers, how do we like truly um, incorporate their uh, their wants and needs into these discussions, because I think that is still, as Gage mentioned earlier, lacking. I'll add to, I feel that there's often a distrust between scientists and community members, and we really need that that partnership in order to deliver on some of, um, you know, these these findings and goals. You know, I can research, Priyanka can research all day long, all night long, but in the end, if we're just going to a conference and talking about it or writing a paper, um, that's maybe a step short of our research potential. Um, so building those connections and maybe even repairing some damage connections between scientists and communities uh, would be a, a great way to advance some of these environmental justice related initiatives. Well, I must say uh, both of you have given me hope that we can move in that direction. You're both just incredibly insightful and articulate. Um, so. I'm feeling better at the end of this hour than I did at the start. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you both. Such a great conversation.